In today's episode, we are talking with David Dodge, a St. Louis real estate investor with over 18 years of experience and specializes in wholesale real estate, as well as using the Burr method to acquire rental properties with none of his own money. I'm Matthew Ma, the host, about, host of the Truth About Real Estate podcast. I'm excited to talk with you, David. How's it going? Hey, Matthew. I'm excited to be here, man. It's going great. I'm honored to get this opportunity to uh, share some value with your audience and uh, yeah, my goal is just going to be to, uh, you know, teach and, 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 and answer any questions that, that you may have. Great. Let's get started. How did you first get into real estate? When I first got invested in, or started investing in real estate uh, when I was 20. So I'm uh, 20, 37 nice. going on, uh, going on 38 here. And uh, um, that was almost 18 years ago at this point. So I was 20 years old when I started. I was in college and I bought a property to rent out. And uh, I did what we like to refer to as house hacking. So I bought a four bedroom property and rented out the other three bedrooms in that property and uh, re you know, reduced my cost of living down to about 100 bucks a month with that with that rental. So okay. I basically got started about 18 years ago. Nice. That goes by really quickly. You realize like I've been in real estate for 16 years, but 20, yeah, 18 years goes quick. How did you even get started in real estate at 20? Like, you know, when we're 20, like we're in college or graduating college, having fun. Like what made you want to jump into real estate? It's a great question, man. Great question. So I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad at yep. 19. And then at 20 years old, I knew that I wanted to be a landlord. I knew I wanted to create passive income. I knew I wanted to get into a bunch of debt, but good debt. And have somebody else pay it off for me. And rental property is the best way to do it. So how was the question you asked? Um, I went and found a property on the MLS. And I had a buddy who was an agent. So I hired him to represent me. And uh, we made an offer on that property and got that offer accepted. So then I walked into the bank and said, hey, I don't have any money. And I just deliver pizzas at the time. I was 20. You know, uh, what do I need to do to get this property? And they said, well, you got to get 20% to put down. And we'll give you a loan for 80%. I said, okay, well, can I borrow that 20% from my family and my friends? And they said, yeah, we don't care how you get it, uh, but you need 20% down. So I borrowed that money. And then I paid that 20% that I borrowed back over the course of a year or two. And I had an 80% bank loan on the back end. So I did that actually three times while I was in school. And nice. that's basically how I got started. Yeah, I just used a bank loan and it wasn't anything special. You know, it wasn't an FHA loan. It was just a, a conventional, you know, loan. And uh, but, you know, I did it wrong. And we can get into that later, of course. But, um, you know, you have to have 20 percent to put down, you know, if you're going to do it that way. And that's what I did. Let's talk about that, too, because, you know, people are always like, you know, when, especially when you're younger, you're like, how do I even get into this? And you you did it, but you, you looked into it and you, you asked the right questions to learn how to do it. Like, OK, a conventional loan, 80, 20. So you need 20 percent down uh, lenders. Even back then, you know, some lenders like, OK, well, who's the 20 percent coming from? It can, it can come from someone, but who's it coming from? Is it coming as a gift? Is it coming as another form of a loan? Um, and how do you make that work? And then, for example, you ask your friends and family. So, you know, a part of that too will be like, are your friends and family a part of the, the process of buying the house or are they just gifted? Yeah, you know, I think in the beginning, I think I may have had my... Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. So this mm -hmm. is back in, uh, I guess it would be 2004. And back then they didn't have as, as you know, as, string, as stringent, I think it's a good word to use, um, yeah, as regulations word. on where that money came from. 
Um, so as long as that money was in my checking account for 30 days or more, they didn't ask any questions about it. So yeah. I, they basically instructed me, hey, if you're going to borrow this from your, you know, your family or your grandparents or whatever, borrow it now mm -hmm. and put it in your checking account. So that way we can have at least one bank statement showing the average account balances there. And that was it. It was pretty easy. Nowadays, you may have to have them be a co-signer or, again, prove that it was a gift or a loan or do some sort of additional work back then we didn't have to here's yeah. the thing i never i never put down 20 percent nowadays ever i buy yeah. all my properties with hard and private money i use the burr method to buy rehab rent refinance and repeat and um, i don't have to put 20 percent down anymore because of the burr method strategy um, so now that that question is kind of irrelevant to me because saving up 20 percent is hard let's be honest Right. The yeah, average yeah. property that I was buying in college, as well as the average property that I'm buying today, is somewhere between one hundred and fifty and two hundred thousand dollar property. Well, let's just assume we're talking about one hundred and fifty thousand dollar property. Well, 20 percent is 30 grand, mm -hmm. you know, so saving 30 grand, you know, is difficult for most people. Yeah, it takes about a lot of work to get to 30 grand net. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about that, too. Like, OK. Yeah, especially in today's market, it really there's different policies, there's different ways to structure loans, but you really gotta be open, understanding, ask the right questions, ask early on getting loans, and understanding from whatever whatever state you're in, ask the lenders there and try to learn how you can get loans. And you mentioned a good point: hard money loans and private money loans, especially as a real estate investor, because you can use the Burr method. And let's kind of talk about that. If you're getting a property, like why not do 20% down? Like why get the hard money loan? And I understand it, but I want our audience to understand like why would you get a private money loan rather than getting a conventional loan? How does doesn't that affect your numbers? How much time you got? <laughs> All time for you. All right. So here's the I'm gonna break this question down. I'm gonna try yeah. to keep it short, but it may be a couple minutes. I'm gonna warn you. Okay, so in the beginning, when I was in college. I did the house hacking and I put down 20% and I bought properties that way. I did that very passively for, um, for about 10 years, right? I, I didn't, I wasn't in real estate full time. Um, I was buying, you know, basically about a house a year. Um, and I did that for 10 years. And I actually, at the end of the 10 year period, Matthew, I had 12 properties. So I got lucky two of the 10 years, uh, by, but, but I was able to buy two properties in a year instead of one. So at the end of 10 years, I had 12 properties, but every single one of those properties that I did over that 10 year period, all 12, um, were done the wrong way. And I say the wrong ways because I know how to do it the right way now. And the wrong way was to save the 20% and put it down or borrow the, the 20% and then pay it back over the course of a year or two. It's a very slow process, right? The average property that I was buying was about 150 grand, 20% is 30,000 times that by 12 properties. That's 360 grand that I essentially borrowed or saved to get positioned into these 12 properties. Okay. So that approach looked like this. Let's break it down because then I'm going to explain how the Burr method works so we can compare the differences, right? So that, that approach looks like this. Find a property that's listed or find an agent. It doesn't really matter which one you do first. But if it's on market, you're going to typically need an agent to represent you. Or you can go work with the agent that's listing the property that you're trying to buy and have them represent you as well. So essentially, you find the agent or you find a property. Um, and then 
you know, depending on if they want to represent you or you find your own agent, you find the property, then you make an offer on it. Well, all the properties that are listed on the MLS in my eyes are retail properties, mm -hmm. right? They are asking essentially full retail for those properties. And even if they're going to discount that price, you know, what is something worth? Let's just take a pause just for one second. What's something worth? It's worth what somebody else is willing to pay you for it. Would you agree with me on that? Yep. Great. So if I have a property that's listed on the MLS and I have it listed for 80 grand and somebody comes and says, I'll give you 70 for it. Is it really worth 80? Well, if nobody else is coming to the table and saying, hey, I'll give you 80 for it. It's probably not worth 80. It's probably worth what I'm willing to pay or what anybody else is willing to pay, period. All right. So the point that I'm trying to make here is when you go and you buy a property on the MLS, it's listed, it's on market, it's full retail. So what that means also is the purchase price is probably going to be equal to the appraisal. It may be a little bit above or below, but at the end of the day, if a property just sold for this amount of, of money and no work or repairs were done to it, and you ask an appraiser, hey, what's it worth? They're going to say, well, it just sold for, I'm throwing out a number here. It just mm -hmm. sold for 67 grand. It's probably worth 67 grand because that's what somebody just bought it for. So in the beginning, again, 10 years, 12 properties, I would find an agent or a deal. I would then make an offer via that agent and we would get that property under contract. Well, then I would then walk into a bank, like I had mentioned, and I would say, hey, I need to buy this property. I don't have any money. And they would say, hey, Dave, no problem. We'll give you 80% loan, but you got to come up with that 20%. Well, regardless of if that property is $1 or a million dollars, 20% is 20%. This is math. You can't break the rules of math, right? 20% is 20%. So no matter what the number of the purchase price is, you got to bring 20% to the table. In my case, it was $150,000 property. 20% is 30 grand. If I didn't have the 30 grand, I had to get it somehow. I had to borrow it or partner with somebody, whatever. Later on, you know, after I was out of college and I had jobs and businesses, I would save the 30 grand and put down. But in the beginning, I was borrowing that money. So that's the old way. That's the wrong approach, in my opinion. All right. We were walking into the bank and we were asking the bank to help us buy the property. All right. So I just I wanted to lay that out. So now we can compare the differences. Your question was, you know, what's the Burr method? How does it work? And how are we able to use that strategy to not have 30 grand or 20 percent down? So here's how we do it whenever we use the Burr method. It's a whole different approach completely. What we're going to do is we are going to find a deal, probably not on the MLS. Probably not. Reason being is, is because when you buy a property on the MLS, the purchase price is most likely going to be very similar to what the appraisal is. All right. So now what we're going to do is we're going to try to find an off market deal. Now, can you do this with on market deals? Yeah, you can. But it's going to be much, much more difficult because all the data is out there. Everything is going to be transparent. People are going to see what you paid for the property. The appraiser is going to see what you paid for the property. There's no way around it. It's public information, right? So what we typically do nowadays is we find properties off market. We do so by direct to seller marketing. What does that look like? Well, it looks like cold calling and, and, and door knocking and driving for dollars and 
um, sending direct mail or putting bandit signs out or maybe paying for mass media like like radio or billboards or bus stops or television ads, right? We do all of these things other than television ads. I don't do that one yet, but I do all the other things that I mentioned. And a lot of it is just, you know, just marketing that we buy houses and that we pay cash. And that if somebody doesn't want to work with a real estate agent or they don't want their photos online or they don't want to wait and show their property a bunch of times, they can work with an investor like me that will come in and pay cash and close quickly. Okay, so off market is typically going to be a much better strategy for most investors, regardless of what their exit is, especially for investors that are using the Burr method. So the big difference from the beginning is we're not looking on the market for deals. We're looking off the market for deals, direct to the seller, all right? Next, we're gonna locate that property and we're gonna make an offer to that seller for a discount. But how would we get a property a discount? Well, it's simple. We're going to offer convenience to them. It's that simple. Don't overthink this. We're going to bring convenience to them. And in exchange, we're going to demand a discount. We're not going to ask for a discount. We're going to demand it. So if somebody needs to sell fast, they're looking for a cash buyer that can pay cash. And let's assume that they don't want to make repairs, paint, clean, declutter. They don't want to do any of that. Maybe they're a hoarder, right? Well, we can say, take what you want, leave the rest behind. It's my problem. I'm going to buy this thing as is. That's convenience. And in exchange for all those conveniences, we demand a discount. So again, off market, find a seller, offer to buy that property. Once we get a property owner, a seller that says, I'll do that deal. Yeah, I know I'm going to leave a little money on the table here, but I just want to wash my hands clean of this headache and move to California or do whatever it is that they want to do. Right. We say, great, we'll buy the property from you. Well, then we go to a private or hard money lender and we borrow the money, all of it, 100 percent of the money that we need to buy that property and we buy it. We're not going to the bank. That was what we did in the beginning. We went to the bank and said, banker, can you help me buy this property? And they say, yeah, no problem. You bring 20 percent to the table. We'll bring 80 percent to the table. Right. We don't do that anymore. Now we use private and hard money lenders to buy and acquire the properties. Check this out. We also borrow the money that we need from our hard or private money lenders. And oftentimes there may be multiple on the deal. If they don't want to lend us all the money, we'll get we'll get multiple lenders. Well, we're going to borrow the money to purchase it. And we're also going to borrow the money to fix it up. So whenever you're buying deals off market direct to the seller, the best way to get a good deal is to find properties that need work. Right. Yeah. If they don't need any work, they're just going to go list it with an agent and get full retail for it. But if it needs 40 or 50 or 60 grand worth of work, agents aren't even going to want to list that property. It's a headache to them. So we go <laughs> directly to the seller. We find the deal, hopefully one that needs work. And we get a really, really good price on it because we're offering convenience. So then we borrow from a private or hard money lender to buy it and we buy it. We do actually go buy it and we pay cash. It's not our cash. It's lent money, borrowed money. Right. We're also going to borrow the cost of the repairs. I use 100% of somebody else's money, OPM, other people's money, to buy my deals. I don't use any of my own money to buy my deals. So then we're going to borrow the rehab and we're going to rehab it. And we're going to make that property look clean and nice and updated. And we do this for a couple different reasons, Matthew. We do it, one, because it's going to increase the value of the property when we fix it up. You agree with me on that, right? Fix the property, it's going to increase the value. Pretty simple. Yep. Okay. Number two, 
it's going to increase the appraisal because the value went up. So it's going to appraise for more money than when we bought it. And number three, because of the rehab, we're going to get to charge more money in rent, right? When you are going to rent a property, the tenants, the, the prospective renters are going to look at your property and all the other properties in the area that are for rent. And they're going to say, well, what are the prices and what are the conditions? Well, if you have the nicest condition, then you can easily get the highest price. So we're going to increase the value via the rehab. It's going to give us a higher appraisal. It is going to give us a higher rent. But another thing that most people don't really understand about the rehab too, or they just don't mention it, is it's going to reduce or mitigate the amount of capital expenditures that we're going to have to have or, or put into this property in the immediate future. And when I say immediate future, I'm talking seven to 10 years. So, you know, over the next seven to 10 years, I'm not going to hopefully have to replace an HVAC or a roof or any of these big ticket items because I'm going to do that when I buy it. All right. So we're going to buy it with hard money or private money. We're going to borrow some rehab funds on top to fix the damn thing up. Okay. Next, what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to rent the property out. Now the property is an asset versus a liability. For those of you listening and watching that don't know the difference, assets put money into your pocket. Maybe not daily, but hopefully monthly or quarterly or at a very minimum annually. Liabilities take money out of your pocket. Could be daily, probably more so like monthly or quarterly, but they cost you to own them. So what's a good example of a liability? A car, a jet, a boat, an RV. These things are decreasing in value typically. Not only that, they cost you money to own them. You have to gas them and insure them and store them and keep them clean and maintain them and tires break and go flat. They cost money to own these things, right? So a vacant house isn't an asset. In fact, the house you live in isn't an asset. Mm -hmm. It's a liability. What yeah. is an asset? It's something that puts money in your pocket. So when you buy a house and you fix it up and you rent it out, well, now it's an asset. It wasn't before. Now it is. So- we buy it, we rehab it, we rent it. The next step in the Burr process is to refinance it. So now I am going to walk in the bank just like I did in the beginning, but I'm not going to ask the bank to help me buy a house. I already own this house and I've already rehabbed this house and I've already got it rented. So now what I do is I walk into the bank and I say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Banker, I'm Dave. I've been doing this for about seven, eight years full time. I've done this about 200 times at this point, the Burr method. And I have a, an asset. It's a rental property. Here's some photos of it. Here's my lease. Here's my rent roll. It is an asset. I owe somebody else money on it. Would you be interested in refinancing it and letting me owe you money on it instead of this other hard money or private money lender? And the bank's going to say, you already own it. It's been rehabbed. It's rented. And you want to refinance? Absolutely. You just checked every box that, that there is for us to want to know if we want to do business with you. Obviously, they're going to underwrite you and make sure that you have decent credit and all this other stuff. But the majority of the underwriting is going to be on the asset itself. Oh, and by the way, in the event that you don't make your payments and the bank has to re has to take that property back, this is called a foreclosure. Are they going to want to foreclose on a property that needs 40 grand worth of work? 
Well, if they need to get the property back, they will, right? But it's not going to be something that they're going to want to do. Well, if that property just had a $40,000 facelift and I don't make the payments, the risk of the bank has been mitigated. Them taking that property back and selling it is going to be easy for them. So again, I'm reducing the risk of the lender by rehabbing it first. So let's speed up. I told you I was going to take a couple minutes with this with this answer. I'm almost done. Good. I promise. I promise. Okay. So now we're going to walk in the bank just like we did in the beginning, but we're not asking the bank for a purchase loan. We're asking the bank for a refinance. And the bank's going to say, you already own it. Great. Dave, we're going to send the appraiser out. And once we get that appraisal back, we're going to lend 80% just like they did in the beginning. But here's the big difference, Matthew. When you go for a refinance, what you paid for the property is no longer relevant. It is irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. Okay. When you go and you buy a property on the market and you use a bank to help you buy it, the purchase price is typically going to be right in line with the appraised amount. Yeah, maybe a little bit of lower, a little bit above, but relatively speaking, it's pretty damn close. Well, when you buy a property off market and you get a deal on it, you've captured equity. You fix it up, you've forced appreciation, which means you've captured even more equity. You get it rented, well, now it's an asset. Now the bank really wants to lend you on it because it's not a liability. The damn thing's making money every, every month. Now what they're going to do is they're going to send the appraisal out and they're going to say, hey, Dave, we're going to lend you 80% of what it appraises for. But check this out. If I can be all in, purchase, rehab, holding costs, closing costs, and the interest that I owe my lender at or below 80% of what it appraises for, and a bank lends me 80% of what it appraises for, I still have 20% skin in the game but I have zero money out of my pocket in order to acquire the asset. So the Burr method is literally one of the most powerful strategies in real estate investing because it allows me to acquire assets, rehabbed assets, by the way, with zero CapEx for five to seven years, hopefully 10, the highest rent in the neighborhood and less risk for my banker that I can acquire with little to no money. That's the difference. So I'm still having 20% in the game, but I'm using the equity that I capture by buying it at a discount and fixing it up, forcing the appreciation as my 20%. I'm not having to go borrow 20% and put it down, or I'm not having to save 20% and put it down. I pay cash for these properties. I buy them off market. I fix them up for four or five reasons that I just mentioned. I get them rented. And then I go to the bank and I say, I would love to do this deal with you and bring my interest rate from 10 or 12 or 14% with my private or hard money lender down to four or five or 6% with you long-term. And they say, yes, Dave, we would love to lend you. Do you realize, Matthew, that, and I'm sure you do, but banks don't make any money when you go and you deposit money into their bank, that's a liability on a bank's balance sheet. If I go take a hundred grand and deposit it into a bank, the bank owes me a hundred grand. Mm -hmm. That is a liability for the bank. How do banks make money? They make money by lending it and charging an interest rate. 
So if you walk into a bank and you say, hey, I need to get a loan, the bank's going to say, great, hopefully you can be approved by us and we can give you a loan so we can make money as a bank. Banks love to lend money. It's how they make money, right? So when we walk into the bank now, the bank no longer asks us what we paid for the property. In fact, it's not their business. What we say is, is we would love to refinance with you and we want you to lend on what this property appraises for. And our goal is to be at or below the percentage in which they will lend on the appraisal. So let's do this, ex this example really quick, the old way, and then we'll do it the new way. The old way, very simple. Find the deal, 150 grand. You get an agent to help you make the offer on it. And you get it, 150. And it's worth 150. You didn't really get a deal. You just got it under contract. You walk into the bank. The bank says, yeah, we'll help you buy it because you don't own it yet. You got to bring 20% to the table. And that's it. You bring 20%, they bring 80%, you buy it. You have a mortgage. You rent it. It's an asset after you buy it, not before, right? That's the old way. And I like to refer to it as the bad, wrong way. Don't do that unless that's the only option you have or you just want to park money. That's fine too, right? But if you're trying to scale your portfolio of rentals, this is a slow way to do it. So here's the new way. Find a deal off market that I can get a deal on. You can get a deal on. Pay cash for it. Offer to buy it as is. And close quick. And I say quick, that's relative. Three, four weeks, not three, four months, right? That it may take on the market. Maybe, maybe not. But it's going to take a little longer typically. Fix the property up. And I like to borrow all the purchase and all the rehab, all of it. Get it rented. Now it's an asset. Now we're going to walk into that same bank, but it's a whole different perspective now. I'm not looking to have the bank help me buy it. I already own it and I've already fixed it. I've already rented it. And now I go into that bank and I say, hey, I want to refinance this existing asset that I already own. And if you would, are willing to give me the loan, I would love to work with you. And then they send the appraiser out. And they say, we're going to lend you 80%. Well, in this very, very same scenario, let's say I bought the property for 90 grand off market at a deal and it needed 30. That's the 120. That's, that's the 80% that the bank's going to loan. But it appraises for 150. And I'm all in it at 120. Well, in that scenario, I'd have to pay a little bit of interest to my lender. So I'd have to maybe bring a couple thousand to close. But if I bought it for 90 and I only had to put 25 in it instead of 30, and I'm all in at 115, and the bank lends me 120, the difference of 115 and 120 is five grand. That's going to be the interest that I'm going to typically have to pay to my lender on the first on the front side. And what that allows me to do is it allows me to get that property appraised at 150 and get a loan for 120, pay back the lender for the purchase, pay back the lender for all the rehab, pay back the lender for the interest, and hopefully, ideally, cover the closing costs and the utilities and all the all the miscellaneous fees and expenses along the way. And if I'm going to be escrowing with my loan, I got to prepay my taxes and insurance. And if I buy it at enough of a discount, I can factor all those costs in and the bank refinance will help me pay all of it. And I can acquire a rental property, an asset, a fully rehabbed one at that, rented to 
with little to no money. So I've done this about 200 times, Matthew. And <laughs> over like, the last 100 burrs that I've done, mm -hmm. I am averaging $1,200 out of pocket at refi. So in the beginning, I was averaging 30 grand out of pocket. Now, using this amazing strategy, the most powerful strategy in real estate, in my opinion, and I brought my cost from 30 grand to buy a rental property and one that probably needed some work anyway, down to $1,200. And that rental property that I'm getting for $1,200 has got a fresh rehab. It's an amazing strategy. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's break some of this down too. You know, doing the burn method, how much cash flow are you getting at the end of the day for let's talk about one property after all that work? It depends on the loan on the loan that I go with. That's an excellent question. If I do a 10 year loan, I'm probably not going to cash flow anything on it. If I do a 20-year loan, I might cash flow 300 to 400 bucks a month. Yeah. If I go do a 30-year loan, I might cash flow five or $600 a month. So it really depends on the product in which we choose and decide on in the end. The average deal that I'm doing is a five-year fixed rate over 25-year amortization. And that allows me to get anywhere between $350 and $400 on average for a single-family home. That's roughly worth about 150000 bucks. Okay. And then in the next three to four years while holding it, uh, you know, you're getting cash flow right, right there and then you're banking on the market and the um, building equity as well since the house is pretty much done, right? Well, I'm not really banking on the property to appreciate. That's mm -hmm. speculating, right? Mm -hmm. will, it, will it appreciate over a long enough time horizon? Well, we would hope so. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I would even go as far as say is it should, but I never speculate. That, that doesn't jive with me. I'm an investor not a speculator. So will you gain equity in it over a several year period? Well, yeah, you will, because a part of your payments going to principal pay down. So in that aspect alone, you will gain wealth. You will create wealth. You will gain equity. If the value goes up, you can capture a little bit of equity that way too. I don't like to speculate that my properties are going to increase in value. If they do, it's icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. But over the long enough time horizon, 15, 20, 25, maybe even 30 years, I get that's a long time, but the tenants are going to pay the property off. So just based on that principle alone, if you have a long enough time horizon, your tenants will pay the property off for you and you'll have no debt on it. And then for the 200 properties, are you, you know, holding all 200 still, or you plan to hold it or are you going to No, we sell some off turnkey and, um, you know, sometimes we'll do a bird deal and we have to bring five or 10 grand at the table. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. And then, you know, if we need money for a rehab, there might be 30 grand worth of equity in that deal. We'll sell that deal off and use that equity to cover overages in the business. It also helps pay my team and my staff. Um, it also helps pay for my office and my overhead and all my systems and my marketing. You know, we spend roughly six to eight grand a month on marketing. That's how we're able to get deals off market, right? So, you know, they're, 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 I have about 90 units as of today. The portfolio brings in about 20 grand a month. Mm -hmm. And I've done the Burr method about 200 times. I think last I checked, I was like 196 or something like that. So I just ran nice. 200, right? So I don't own all those today mm -hmm. because as I do it more and more, I get better at it, right? And one of my passions, obviously, is to build my own portfolio and to use the Burr method, but it's to teach other people like I'm doing right now on this, on this podcast and this show with you. To, to use this strategy. So I spend about half of my time at this point 
working with my students, coaching and mentoring them on how to do it and how to do it right. And I spend the other half of my time at this point working in and on my business, actually doing this. So that's a, that's a great question. And I like to think about it because I, you know, I come from different aspects of real estate too. Like I'm a, you know, first I'm a real estate broker associate. I sell real estate in, in the San Francisco Bay area. That's one way. And then at the same time, I'm a multi-unit investor in the Bay area and out of state syndicating deals. And for me, when I look at it, like there's fix and flip, there's wholesaling, there's burrowing, and there's so many different methods. All of them are different. It just depends on what the person likes to do and how they do it and the skill sets. And for me, like when I look at um, burrowing method, I see it's a lot of work to do it. You you make money and you're cash flowing, which is great. But I, I account for all the time it takes to get to the end point and how much cash flow you're really making. Three to five hundred dollars per door, you know, it's still a lot of work because the risk is even though you did it and the house is you know pretty much turnkey now, you built you built some appreciation value equity, uh, hopefully. And even if the market's changing a little bit, it, it changes. And for myself, I like to look at the multi-unit factor. Like, you know, instead of one house, one roof and dealing with it, like 10 houses, you got 10 roofs, 10 foundations, 10 everything. You know, trading that properties, trading those single families into multi-units, because when you trade it to multi-unit, you're reducing the risk. You're going to commercialize properties. You're getting commercial loans. But then the add value factor and taking the gross rent multiplier, mathematically using these numbers and adding value per door, you can... Uh, increase it and even when you start adding in cost segregation to uh, accelerate depreciation yeah only. you're not wrong you're talking about all the pros and in fact pros, i'm doing yeah. the burr method right now on a 24 unit apartment building so you nice. can use this burr method strategy yeah on single family homes you can do it on small multifamily properties you can do it on large multifamily properties you can even do it on commercial properties I've, i did one that about three months ago on a commercial strip center and i walked out of closing with a new asset that had been rehabbed, I walked to a closing with $52,000. Nice. So not only can you use the Burr method to acquire properties with little to no money, you can even use the Burr method to acquire properties and get paid to do it, right? So you did mention a lot of pros with multifamily. You didn't mention any of the cons. Let's talk about that. Let's be transparent with the, with the listeners and the viewers, right? It's going to be a lot less liquid. Single families can sell quick. Everybody needs to buy a house or live in a house or investors will buy them to rent them or fix them up. Multifamilies aren't as liquid, right? But yes, you can do this with small single families, small multifamilies, large multifamilies, and even commercial. So the type of property is really irrelevant when you're talking about the Burr method. You pick the type of property, the method is the same. Yeah, and I think one thing too is like the liquidity factor really depends on what you're trying to do and the end goal of it. But yeah, single families uh, flip way faster. And definitely yeah, that's another thing. So like, you know, you can turn over a $30,000 rehab on a single family in, you know, four, six, maybe eight weeks. Try doing try doing a 24 unit re renovation in six weeks. Yeah, you can't do that. I mean, it's not, it's not going to happen unless you got 60 people working on the site. So again, don't don't get me wrong. I love multis. I think they're great. But for the average person that wants to use the Burr method, start with a single family home. It's easy. It's less risk. It's cheaper. It's quicker. You know, again, I'm not arguing with you, Matthew. I think multifamilies are great. But the average person is not going to be able to go get a loan for $3 million no. to buy a big multifamily building. But can they get a loan for 150 grand pretty easily? Yeah.
Absolutely. Yeah, and I agree so, with you. I think just things thing to keep in mind up. for the listeners. Yeah, and I think the thing for them is like scaling up. Like when you're starting up, you're starting a single family. Single families are definitely fast, easy to grow. I do like the fact that when you think about uh, taking the um, hard money, private money loans first, because yeah, a person who sits there and waits for the twenty percent down payment, it takes forever to get twenty percent down payment. And if the market, yeah, keeps I mean, rising, it, it forever could be never. Be never. Yeah. Imagine even in San Francisco Bay Area, the average fixer upper is 1.5 million per fixer upper, right? And the houses that are nicely done could get 2 million plus. And that's hard for anyone to put 20% down on. I do like yeah, that. 20% down on 2 million is 400 grand. Mm-hmm. And people do it all day. People buy cash offers for $2 million here in the Bay Area, but it's not easy for, for the majority. It's not easy at all. And you know the fact that you can do hard money, private money, get 100% financing, make it work. I think the thing to talk about too is the numbers. So when you're looking at $150,000 deal, you know, taking into account the hard money loan, 100%, the rates, the timeline to remodel, and then the cost of remodeling, uh, all, all inclusive, if you're still netting a good number at the end of the day, it makes sense because you're going to rent it out and you, you project the market rate is going to be better cash flow plus the refinance. It's great. One issue I see right now with COVID going on with interest rates rising for some people is scary because I don't know what the interest rate will be when I do a cash out, when I do a refinance um, on the property. And also with the materials and contractors being so heavily used and there's um, a lot less resources, then your cost of construction goes up too. So there's some risk in the burn method or even in that part of it and even fix and flips. So then... Yeah, there, there, there is always going to be risk when you are investing. By definition, investing requires or it, it, it is risk. There's risk involved and you are taste, you are making money by moving money around. That's the definition of investing, right? It's making money with money and taking on risk, right? So you're, you're not wrong by any means. But here's the cool part. If you buy a property at a 20 or 30 or in some cases a 40% discount, you can screw up six different times and sell that property and break even. That's the difference. And that's why I teach all my students to learn how to find deals, learn how to buy deals, right? When I, when I look at a property, I don't look at how much money I can make. I look at it, how bad can I screw up and still make a dollar? How bad can I screw up and still break even on this deal? And if there's no margin, then it's not a deal, right? Here's another reason why I would, why I would really, really encourage your audience, your viewers, your listeners to learn how to go direct to the seller. Yeah. All right. Here, this is going to be a really good lesson for, I think, a lot of people. Okay, we're going to do a quick example. We're going to do a, um, what would you call this? We're going to just do, you know, like a, like a mock um, example of what a listing agent does when they go out and they meet a property owner. All right. I will be, I'll play both sides here just for simplicity. So you got a, you got a guy, he's got a house that he wants to sell and he is uh, going to bring out an agent to talk to him about helping him sell that property. Well, the agent's going to do this. The agent's going to come out and they're going to say, you should work with me because I'm great. And I've done all these previous deals and helped all these other people. And I'm awesome. Oh, and by the way, you know, we're going to get you 100% of, of what this is worth, maybe even more. And that's a pretty good pitch, right? And the seller in that situation is going to say, hey, this sounds great. You're confident. 
you got some experience under your belt, let's do it. And they're going to sign up with that agent. Now, me as an investor, if I see that a house that's listed and that agent just gave that pitch and I come in and I say, I'll give you 70 cents on what you're asking. Do you think that agent's going to be excited to present that offer to the seller? <laughs> no, not at all. He might not even present it, which I know, have, goes against, I know that goes against being an agent and all the, all the fiduciary duties that agents have. But agents are people just like me and you. And they're not going to be real excited about presenting that offer. Yeah. Let's flip the script. If I came out now this time, again, as the agent, and I meet the seller and I say, hey, Mr. Seller, you know, we're going to get this thing listed. I've done a couple deals in the past. I'm pretty confident that I can get you 70 cents on the dollar for what this property is worth. Do you think that agent is going to get that listing? Probably not. So that is why I avoid the MLS like the plague because the agents have convinced the sellers that their property is worth often more than it is worth. So how do you go about finding deals? Yeah, you can maybe find a couple on the MLS, but the majority of the deals are going to be direct to the seller from your marketing methods. And you're going to go in and you're going to say, hey, I'm not going to pay you full retail. I tell that to sellers every single day, Matthew. I don't pay retail. But guess what I do do? I pay cash. I close quickly. And I will buy this property as is. So if you're dealing with death, divorce, disease, job relocation, pre-foreclosure, back taxes, tax issues in general, I can help you. I'm not going to do it for free. I'm going to buy this property from you at a discount so I can turn around and fix it up and sell it for a profit or ideally hold it as a rental using the Burr method with little to no money. But in exchange for the discount that you're willing to provide me, Mr. or Mrs. Seller, outside of the MLS, outside of an agent who's already convinced them that they're going to get full price or more for the property, I'm going to offer this convenience in exchange for the discount. So, Here's why I like to use that scenario and tell that story. My partner, Mike, and I, over the last seven years, have bought and sold over 750 properties that we've wholesaled. We've bought and bird over 200 properties. So we've done roughly about 1,000 transactions in the last seven years. I want you to take a guess how many of those transactions were bought on market, meaning they were listed on the MLS, and there was an agent or a broker involved. How many do you think out of a thousand? Maybe for you, less than 5%. Less than 5%. Mm -hmm. That's correct. 100%. Less than 5%. Nice. So are there markets in the country where you can find a good deal on the MLS? Well, yeah. We, we Out of 100 houses that we buy, four or five of them are going to be on the market. But the other 95% or more of those properties that we're going to get deals on, and I'm not saying a 5% discount, that doesn't do me anything. I want a 20 to 30% minimum discount. Those properties are going to be people that call me because they saw some of my marketing out there and there's no agent or broker involved. Or I've called them because I drove by it and the, and the roof's got a leak in it and there's a boarded up window and the neighborhood's not happy with you. So I call and I say, hey, I'm an investor in the area. I already own three houses in the neighborhood. This one looks like it needs some work. You want to sell it to me? I'd love to pay you cash for it. Oh, and by the way, we can close in two weeks. 
Oh, and you don't need to clean it, paint it. You don't need to do anything. You don't even need to, you don't even need to meet me there. If you don't have a key, I'll hire a locksmith. I'll handle all of it. That's what convenience looks like. That's how we're able to get deals. And if yeah, you use a method on an on-market property, it's mm-hmm. going to be very difficult because where are you going to build that 20% equity at? Can you gain 20% equity, Matthew, by forcing appreciation only? Well, yeah, but it's going to be a whole lot more difficult than if you buy it at a 15 or 20% discount already, right? We buy properties typically at a 20% discount minimum. And then when we fix them up, we gain an additional 5 to 10% equity capture. So whenever we go and we refinance that property and pay back that private or hard money lender that we borrowed the money from, ideally we can we can use 100% of that bank money to pay them out. And again, I'm averaging about 1200 bucks at, okay. at, at close. Let's talk about this. What, what kind of rates are you seeing with hard money lenders right now? And even in the last month or two, have they been raising rates dramatically too? I haven't seen the rates going up with hard money recently, but yeah. you know it's possible mm-hmm. that it that it that it will. Uh, but one thing you have to understand is, um, you know, hard money is typically a business. It's an institution, or uh, a, it could be a small business, of course, too. But it's an entity. Hard money is typically an entity loaning to another entity. Private money doesn't have to be a business at all. It can be your aunt Jane or your uncle Tom. It can be another real estate investor. It can be anybody. So my private money rates are typically going to be somewhere between 10 and 12%. Typically. Hard money. Yeah. Hard. Well, hard money is even more. Hard money is 14, 15, could be as high as 17 or 18%. But here's what a lot of people don't understand. They get, they see this 12, 14, 16%. And they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. I can't do that. (laughs) Well, I think that that is the dumbest mindset. It is. It is uneducated. And here's why. You're not borrowing the money for 20 years at 14%. You're borrowing the money for three or four or five months typically. Unless you're doing a multifamily or a commercial, then going through 24 units is going to take you a whole lot more than one. But this is why I love the single family business because it's simple, it's quick, it's easy, right? So if I go borrow, let's say I borrow... In our example before, where I borrow 90 grand to buy a property, and then I borrow an additional 25,000 to fix it up, right? That's $115,000 that I'm going to borrow. So I got my calculator out, 115,000. Let's say I have to pay 14% annual. That's 0.14. So 115 times 0.14 equals $16,100. Well, I'm going to divide that by 12 because that's annual. That's the total amount of interest I'd pay over the whole year. So if I divide that by 12, that's $1,341 a month in interest. If I only need that loan for three months, I can times that by three. That's $4,000 in interest. Now, if I was you know, not willing to pay somebody 14% or four grand to borrow that money for you know, three months, then I wouldn't have any opportunity to do any deal at all. Yeah, the four thousand seems like it's four grand and fourteen percent, and I could capture thirty thousand dollars worth of equity by paying them four grand to get into the deal. Would you Would you be willing to pay four grand to capture thirty thousand? I would all day, every day, every second of every day. I will do that deal, right? So those people listening, watching, and so on and so forth that are worried about a twelve or fourteen or even a sixteen or even an eighteen percent interest rate. 
you are not signing up for 20 years at that rate. Hopefully you're only signing up for that rate at three or four or five months. So, you know, these rates are not bad. They're not evil. People are making money just like me and you are, right? But without them, how could we buy the property cash unless we borrow the money, you know, from another source or we save it? And in your market, properties are 1.5 million. There's not that many people that can save that kind of money. Yeah, exactly. There's not. And if you look at it in the, you know, if you're talking about San Francisco as a whole, well, there might be quite a few people there, but there's 345 million Americans. What percentage of America has $1.5 million in cash? Less than 1% of 1%, Matthew, you know this. Mm -hmm. So it's not feasible for most people. It's just not. Yeah. And that's why, you know, it's always good to look at different markets because there's so many different markets that have different price points. And even for me, when you look at the numbers financially, okay, $4,000, not the 14%, the $4,000. If I can spend $4,000 this much time, I make this much equity mathematically. It's it makes sense. But when you think about 14%, I don't want to pay 14%, but everyone forgets three months only, five months only, six months only, hopefully, you know, but there's some yeah, risk. People that don't want to pay 14% is good for me in a way because it's less people coming in trying to buy my deals. Yeah. You know, and I tell my students, don't have fear about this 14%. In fact, hopefully one day you're on the other side of the table and you're lending your money out of 14%. That'd be nice too. That's what I do at this point too. I lend money to my students and friends and, and acquaintances at 14%. No problem. You know, but it's not bad because I'm not lending it or borrowing it for 20 years. It's typically a six to eight month loan. And ideally, the quicker, the better. Because it's less interest. Yeah. And you get paid back. You can redeploy the money again. Yeah. And 14% is annualized. You know, that's another thing people don't realize. They're like, oh my God, that's crazy high. Well, it's annualized. You don't have to pay 14% if you don't have the money for 365 days. It's it's the breakdown of that, right? So I think that's where the education comes along, teaching and coaching people about the, the numbers and say, hey, you know, annualize is this much. But if you divide that by four quarters, you know, for example, and then you times it by two or half a year, then here's your actual analyze. Let's call it 6% or 7%, for example, right? That's a oh, okay, 7%. That's not too bad. If I that's not it. too bad at all. You're talking about 7% if you only have it out for six months. Yeah. I mean, if you have bad credit and you want to go buy a home right now, you're going to probably pay about 7%. <laughs> yeah, that too. So that's a part of it too. So, you know, in, when you're doing burn method and you're taking all this time, it's a lot of work, but at the same time, you know, like at the end of the day, you're, you're netting 350, 400, 500 per building. And then, you know, you mentioned 90, 90 units. That's quite a bit. And then hopefully the upside without speculation is that you build equity upon that too. And, you know, trade some properties to get some bigger ones. Um, some people might trade it to some multi-units. That's fine too. And the trade-off for the people is really just understanding what do they want to do. You want to do wholesale and you want to do fix and flips, you know, either, and you also think about taxation throughout the period or, or you want to sell real estate for burr properties, single family, multi-units, whatever it may be. And, you know, it's just up to the person to really decide. But you mentioned too in burring properties, there's still properties available today. You guys are still finding properties today, even though the, there's really limited inventory. And we talked about two different markets, on-market MLS and off-market, you know, and finding directly to the sellers. And, you know, for me, I'm like, it's really hard sometimes, even for agents, it's really hard to go find these sellers who want to buy and sell. You really have to be diligent in talking to everyone 
have really good marketing, really good call to action. And there is two types of sellers, a seller who wants to get paid now, uh, wants cash, wants convenience, wants as is, and doesn't want to deal with it. And there's some people who say, I don't care about that. I want the most money for my property. Who's going to fix it up, help me sell it, get the most value because I want the most equity to buy something bigger. But then for you guys, you guys are targeting the people who need help in that space at that time to say, I need to move tomorrow. Give me pay today. I'll take the discount because it's convenient. For me, I'm looking for people who want to maximize their property. I will help them. I'll take the listing. I'll help coordinate with my team to remodel. Yeah, and we, we own a brokerage stop. and we do the same thing on that side. It depends on what the motivation of the property owner is. Mm -hmm. Is it to sell it quick? Well, as an agent, you can't promise that unless you're buying it. Yeah. Can you? you can't. Depends how fast they need it. Seven days? Nope. I can't give you maximum. Yeah, you can't guarantee days. that. I mean, typically, mm -hmm. even after you find a buyer, it's 30 to 45 days. Yeah. Sometimes right? If, I, if I get a guy that wants to sell it and he needs his money on Friday of next week, if he gives me a, a good enough deal, I can make that happen for him. Now, we also have people that come to us and they say, hey, I don't need to sell it quick. I can let it sit for six or eight months. Well, then great. Mm -hmm. Let's help you list it and get you the most amount of money that we possibly can. Right. Of yeah. course, we're going to offer that to people. But as an investor, you've probably heard this before. I hope you've heard this before. You make your money when you buy. You get paid when you sell. So buying retail is the most foolish thing you can do as an investor. Yeah, especially as an investor, you gotta yeah, you get paid when you buy it. So you really have to find the good deals. And well, you make your money when you yep. buy. You get make paid when you sell. There's a difference there. The money's made on the buy. Buy it right. Buy it at a discount. Right? If I buy a property at a 20 or 30% discount and I go way over on my rehab, let's say I I anticipate my rehab on a property, you know, being 30 grand, and I end up spending 45. If I bought it at a 20% discount, I can still sell that and make a profit, even going over 50% of the rehab. But if I buy a property at basically retail and I rehab it and go over budget by 50%, I'm underwater in that deal right away, right away. And as you know, the cost of selling a property is roughly 7 to 9%. 6% in commissions typically. Maybe you get a deal and you can get it for five or four and a half. You're going to have seller concessions. You're going to have closing costs. You're going to have holding costs. You're going to have, you know, different fees. You're going to have, you're going to, you're going to have um, inspection items. All of these things add up. So the cost of selling a property, you know, seven to 9%, I typically just round it up and just say it's 10% to sell a property. What do you think? The hardest part right now in wholesaling is right now and burring right now in this year. What's lack the of inventory. Answer? That's a very simple question to answer. Yeah, lack of inventory. I mean, I've been doing this full time for eight years. I've been in the business for almost eighteen. So yeah, where are these sellers going right now? If you're helping them, buy, if you're buying it from them, like where are they going? Because the market's uh, tough for them to find something. Yeah. So seventy five percent of the properties that we buy are vacant. Mm -hmm. They're either they're absentee owned, which doesn't necessarily mean they're vacant but the owner doesn't live in them or they're vacant. Absentee owned can be rented, mm -hmm. right? Could be a family member living there. could be a tenant living there. We love buying occupied properties, assuming it's not the owner living in them or vacants. Vacants are going to be liabilities. 
They're not assets like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. So 75% of the properties that we're buying are either mismanaged, absentee owned or vacant properties. Okay. And then like, what do you think is going to happen in the f- near future with the interest rates rising, the markets changing a bit, tech companies are laying off right now. Um, how do you see that going? Well, um, I think when, I mean, this is a fact when interest rates go up, the purchasing power goes down. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. It's not an opinion. So I think that, you know, the people that are interested in getting loans to buy properties are going to be able to buy less expensive properties. That's, you know, goes without saying. Um, but as we are dealing with inflation, one of the best hedges against inflation is real estate. It's dirt. So I don't necessarily think that interest rates are going to decrease the value or the cost or the, you know, appraised amount of a property per se. Um, the great thing about real estate is it's really, really, really relying on supply and demand. And the only thing that is going to reduce demand is the amount of people out there that are looking for a property. And a lot of people are having kids. A lot of people are living longer. So unless we have a mass extinction event, and one could say COVID was one of them, but I don't know that many people died from COVID. We're not, we're not seeing a, a shrinking demand. Yeah. We're not. And supply and demand is what equates to price. So unless people start throwing up houses left and right, and the supply increases, values aren't going to come down. They're just not. Or unless we have an actual plague and pandemic that actually kills people. Now, I know that I think I just saw in the news the other day, there's been a million deaths in the United States from COVID. But over the last, you know, let's just say the previous two years from COVID, there was a million deaths from the flu. It's not any different. It's the same, Right. So we're not seeing a mass extinction event or a reduction in the population. We're not. We're not seeing it. It's a fact. Population is growing. And if the supply doesn't grow equally, then prices are going to keep going up. Interest rates will slow that a little bit and they will reduce the purchasing power of the borrower. But the best hedge against inflation, in my opinion, is dirt. More so than gold, because you can dig more gold out of the ground, but you can't create more dirt. It's a fixed supply. Yeah, that makes sense. And I agree, the population is growing in the world in general. And then I think yeah, the supply is not never going to catch up that, that easily at, um, by far, especially in the U.S. area. So with that in mind, too, um, what are some final tips you would give to people who want to start burrowing, people who want to start wholesaling? How do they really get going, especially in this time with this lack of inventory? Yeah, absolutely. So the lack of inventory is just going to make it a little bit more difficult. It's not going to make it impossible. Mm-hmm. It's only going to be impossible if you give up. So don't stop. Don't give up. Be persistent. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is success is the equation of consistent, persistent action. It's that simple. So start taking action, be consistent, be persistent, and you will find results. It may not happen overnight, but it's, you're, you're going to find results if you're consistent. So the thing about wholesaling specifically, it's not investing. It's marketing. It's a marketing business. So lesson number one, 
learn how to market your business. I tell this to all my students when they come on board. If I don't know that you're looking to buy houses, why would I ever call you to buy my house? So really what I'm saying and what I'm getting at is don't keep your business a secret. That is probably the worst thing that anybody could ever do to help grow their business is to keep it a secret. You need to be shouting from the rooftops that you're looking to buy properties and that the ones that need work are, are fine. You'll take those too, but you're looking to buy property. So if you want to get into this business and you want to wholesale or you want to buy off market deals that you can turn around and fix and flip or rent out using the Burr method or wholesale or do whatever with, you got to learn how to market. So that would be my best piece of advice. Learn how to market, figure out how to get your phone ringing or ring people's phones that own properties and start a conversation with them. This isn't rocket science. Hey, Matthew, do you own a property? Yep. Great. Do you have interest in selling it? But right now I can't buy anything. For okay, no problem. But, you know, is it okay if I call you back in six months and just check in on you? Sure. That sounds great. That's it. That's that's the pitch. Mm -hmm. that, that's, you, don't have to, you don't have to be a rocket science to say those simple words. Yeah, people you get scared of talking to conversations, you know? You know that. You got to pick that phone up. You got to make those calls. And I personally love it when my phone rings. It's much more fun whenever your phone rings and they say, hey, I saw one of your billboards or I saw one of your ads or I'm online searching around and I typed in sell my house fast now and your website popped up. Great. That's exactly right. I buy houses, pay cash, close quick. When can I meet you at the property? I would love to help you. That's it. It's a marketing business. And if you want to be an investor, then you buy those properties that you get from the marketing efforts. And you fix and flip or you own and hold and whatever it is. But if you are just a wholesaler, you're a marketer. You're not an investor. So understand that this is a marketing business before it is any other business. Period. And there's a lot of people out there that probably don't like to hear that because they're not good at marketing. Well, you should make it your mission to be good at marketing. Even if exactly. you are a real estate agent and you're trying to look for buyers or sellers, you got to market you as the business. You are the product and the service. You got to market. So this is a marketing business, Matthew. And that would be my advice to everybody is to learn how to market or to start marketing. No matter if it's just going to networking events, that in and of itself is marketing. It's marketing you. Exactly. I agree hundred percent with that. All right, cool. How do people reach out to you and how do people learn more about you guys? Absolutely, Matthew. And again, I appreciate you having me on. I am very passionate about real estate investing, as you can tell. And I love the Burr method. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Burr method. I love to help people learn the Burr method. I love to help people uh, see how they can use this simple strategy to acquire assets with little to no money. And the best place for people to learn more about me and the Burr method uh, would be to go head on over to wholesalinginc.com. That's W H O L E S A L I N G, Inc. I N C com forward slash rentals. And over there, they can learn more about me. They can learn more about the Burr method specifically. And if they want to book a call with myself or one of my team members, they can do so over at that link as well. So again, that's wholesalinginc.com forward slash rentals. Cool. Thank you so much, David, for being our show. For everyone out there, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a comment for the Truth About Real Estate podcast. And we'll see you guys in the next one. I hope you guys enjoyed this. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Welcome.